uh, welcome back. Uh, my guest today is again uh, Gregory Cochran. Greg, how are you doing? Oh, reasonably well. Oh, excellent. So uh, today we are going to talk about intelligence and IQ. Greg, you have actually, uh, you know a lot about IQ. Um, you've written on the topic yourself. You've recently gone to a conference where they were like the world-class experts on the topic. So this will be hopefully a, a very informed discussion. But let's just start with the basics. What is IQ? <coughs> IQ is basically the result of an attempt at measuring human intelligence, usually done by some sort of paper and pencil test or something related to that. Uh, it started out probably something over 100 years ago. Uh, I think originally they were trying to find uh, in France, you know, kids who would have problems. Uh, but it has been used for many other things, and it works for many other things. Okay, so the IQ is the measure. So it's like what the scale reads. And mm -hmm. what is the underlying thing it's measuring? Um, well, the, the true answer is to look at it uh, and see what it predicts. Uh, but what we think we're measuring is something involved ability to rapid, you know, to t the speed at which you take in information, uh, the complexity of problems that you can solve, stuff like that. Uh, it, uh, uh, but, you know, the real question of these is, what is it actually able to do? Uh, it isn't so much what we intended, though I've seen people who said, well, it was originally intended to do X, and if you use it for something else, you are bad. But, of course, you know, I suppose wheels were originally supposed to be pulled by oxen, and if you put them on cars, you've committed some sort of heresy. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's all nonsense, like most things people say about IQ. But uh, people have found it useful in placing people in certain kinds of jobs of different complexity. Uh, they find that, uh, you know, you, you would like to be able to put in a certain amount of training and have a high probability the person can then function adequately. And uh, IQ is useful to determining who's likely to do that. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's useful. Uh, it's so, you know, job placement uh, in colleges and so forth. Uh, people are saying, like, we're going to have, we're going to teach this guy X at a certain level. Do we think he can do it? Do we think he can do well at it? Uh, IQ scores and related scores, things like SAT scores and GRE scores, are fairly useful at this sort of thing. One common criticism of IQ is that people differ in their intellectual abilities. I, for example, reasonably good at math, but horrible at spelling. So how can an IQ, which is just one number, possibly represent the full complexity of human intelligence? Well, it probably doesn't represent the full complexity. It probably only represents a lot of it. Uh, and if you wanted to, you could probably get more information if you had two scores, for example, which we do on the SAT, or even three. But, but, but it is true that uh, to a fairly uh, strong – there's a fairly strong tendency that people who do well on one test tend to do well on others – that's not 100% true, and there are, you know, so you might call it flavor differences. There are people who are relatively better at math and verbal things. There are people who are relatively better at spatial visualization than other things, but typically they go together. So, so it is. So it's kind of like in high school, the kid who's the best at football probably is above average in soccer. 
Um, yeah, although there you could actually say, you know, the requirements are, are different in a way they aren't for intellectual things or not as much different, which is if you have a guy who's a linebacker and is very big and heavy, that might not, you know, he may be too slow for soccer. Uh, so there are different requirements, but in an intellectual task, uh, there is some, you know, there's some individual differences in flavor, but on the whole, uh, people tend to be good or bad at, uh, at multiple things. There's, for example, there's not a compensation that says he's really bad at X, so he should be really good at Y, which is something people often invoke. It happens, but not very often. On the whole, if you're really bad at X, you're worse than average at Y too. So you're, you're saying if I, let's say I go to high schools and I pick the best kid at math, you would predict that that kid would be also above average, perhaps significantly above average in English as well. On that, that is a, it's a fact that over a population, that is generally true. And the reverse it would is, also hold. If I picked a kid in the bottom 10, kids in the bottom 10% at math, probably most of them would be in the bottom half in verbal abilities as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, uh, but if you wanted to get more information and you can, you can't, um, like one thing people do is they apply statistical analysis to subtests and so forth. They see how they're related mm -hmm. or how they're not related. And they end up, you know, looking for, uh, the eigenvalues and eigenvectors of the correlation matrix. Uh, and what you end up saying that a significant fraction of the whole story is captured in one eigenvector, uh, and the size of its eigenvalue tells how much that is. So, and people often call this sort of general intelligence G. Uh, but th there are a couple of other eigenvectors of the correlation matrix that are big enough to, uh, that probably are at least meaningful. So mm -hmm. there's sort of a generalized pure verbal ability. And then uh, there's another generalized, uh, spatiovisual ability. Uh, but, more of the story is in the first one than the others. And for anything more, you're probably trying too hard. Could so you, if you want, sorry, could you try to give some more intuition for G without invoking a linear algebra? I could try. <laughs> uh, but what is more intuitive after all than linear algebra? Well. <laughs> uh, uh, people also call this principal component analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, you could say that, uh, well, let's try it. Hey, you too have been exposed to this. Let while I'm thinking about it for a second, can you come up with any examples of uh, of uh, you know sort of more intuitive explanations? Well, my for... sports attempt what that was my attempt without using a lot uh, of math. So. Well, I mean, in um, if we were let's let's try for something in the sports direction. Okay, you could say that uh, um, is there such a thing as generalized athletic ability? And the answer is uh, probably not for every sport. But for a variety of sports, you could say the guy who is, uh, you know, good at football is he's got a fair chance of being good at basketball or at least a lot better than average. Uh, it would probably be more true the more closely related the sport. Uh, one, one contrast between intellectual tasks is, see, there's such a thing as being too big or too small for a sport. Mm -hmm. I mean, some sport like suppo suppose we were talking about, a again, an offensive lineman. He might not make a very good jockey because the jockey needs to be small. You needs to not weigh very much because it's harder for the horse to carry him. Uh, uh, there are, 
you know, like a like tallness is more important in a basketball player than it is probably in a football player. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, whereas, and probably matters total size may matter even less for a soccer player. So uh, uh, sports is probably um, you know in a sense sort of goes for more specialized body types. Uh, that doesn't seem to happen as much. It's true a little. I mean, for example, if you have a guy who's uh, an architect, for example, he probably specializes in, you know, spatial visualization is a lot of what he does. And if you have somebody else who is, let's say, works in higher dimensional algebra, and higher means like higher than three. So he knows what eigenvalues are. So. Well, yeah, but the other thing is he can't visualize what he's ah. working on uh, is the important thing. So. You know, even in math and stuff, it varies. Uh, I talked to someone once who had been working on the uh, Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. and he was talking about different cognitive styles of some of the guys he knew there. This was an interesting conversation. He said there were guys who had a very uh, physical picture. They had a, uh, they saw, uh, you know, the stuff that they were thinking about. Fermi was like this. Fermi would have a mental picture very often. Uh, that ha- helped him in understanding some physical process. And then there were other guys, and he mentioned, for example, Edward Teller, who, mm. you know, he he was somebody who was, you know, he made the algebra work. It, it wasn't that he had, at least not as much as Fermi, he didn't have pictures in his head of how this was working. Uh, and some problems in math or physics are probably more easily addressed if you can visualize it. But other things, particularly as they become increasingly abstract, or let's say, you know, very high dimensions, apparently nobody really can visualize them. And so you have to be someone who has good strength in things like logic and keep mastering the formalism. So there are different ways to some extent, even in things like math and physics. But, you know, Fermi was pretty good with equations, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, the, so, so there are different types of intelligence, but they do seem to be mostly correlated with each other enough where one number is usually reasonable to describe uh, someone's intelligence. I would also say that the actual distribution of jobs we have, you know, the number that involve, the fraction of jobs that involve super strong emphasis on spatial visualization is probably mm-hmm. not a huge fraction. I mean, it would probably be certain kinds of engineering and science. It probably wouldn't be uh, a very large fraction of other uh, types of analysis. So, you know, I would say it is true that these things are usually found together. They they march with each other to a pretty significant extent. Uh, but it is also true that there are specialties where further information would be useful. And, I mean, we already do this to a limited extent. People look at your math and your verbal scores and at least, you know, for, from the SAT, and they do think about them separately uh, well, for different majors and things. Well, what about emotional intelligence? Is the ability to interact with other people, is that a different type of intelligence than the ability to understand linear algebra, say? Uh, I don't think it really is. I think it's a label somebody came up that they thought would sound better, but I don't think it has any actual content. Uh, the people who talked about this, they never ended up saying, we gave this test and we were able to predict certain practical things better with it. So I don't think it's really meaningful. That said, was, by the way, it's conceivable this is a, uh, a question of the 
whether the test was proper for it. I mean, there are people, not one we know, of course, who who are weak in intuition for what other people are up to. <laughs> there are other people who are better. And, uh, uh, well, I mean, like, here's a classic example. Uh, 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 Paul Dirac, uh, you know, famous physicist, did great work in the on you know the early beginnings of quantum mechanics, uh, predicted antimatter. Sharp mm -hmm. guy, but he was a strange guy. Strange enough that one of his biographies is called the strangest man. And and here's the very simple example: when he was in his mid twenties, his brother committed suicide. Mm -hmm. his, uh, who had, his brother, who had also I think had been an electrical engineer, committed suicide, and uh, Dirac's father. With, with whom he had never gotten along very well, uh, and I believe his mother as well, were terribly upset about losing that son. And Dirac said, I didn't know that parents cared about their children that much. But I can tell you, just about everybody else knows. Yeah. Uh, and Dirac was, you know, uh, with difficulty understood human emotional things that most people know automatically. I suppose though most of us imagine other people as if they were us. So the more different your brain is from other people, the harder it is for you to understand the other people holding everything else constant. So if you're much smarter than everyone else, you can't use your own brain to model how they're going to behave in a certain situation. Why not? I mean, you're supposed to be smarter. Uh, the I would say uh, if if you are working at making a model, you're working at thinking about it, one of the first things you should notice is that other people aren't like you and then try to make predictions that work for them, assuming you care about the outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, there are sort of two ways of doing this. One, one way that you understand what people do uh, and how they feel is because they're similar to you, and, and they're all somewhat similar. Uh, uh, and, for example, like if you were trying to understand what would happen, uh, how somebody would feel if they lost a son, you can imagine it, and you say, oh, I'd feel terrible, and most other people would. But to the extent that you're different from other people, assuming you actually care about ever getting the right answer, you should make probably not so much empathizing and trying to imagine yourself in the shoes, but sort of making a model, you know, a theory of mind for other people. Uh, and uh, this has to be reasonably possible. Uh, uh, although I will tell you another physicist story. There was a, uh, uh, a guy who was generally acknowledged by everybody in his crowd that he was smarter than anybody they'd ever met, which was John von Neumann. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, Wigner, who was a friend of his, another Nobel Prize winning physicist, said, oh, yeah, Johnny wasn't like the rest of us. Johnny was smart. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and he was saying, by the rest of us, you know, Dirac was his brother-in-law. He knew Dirac. He worked with Feynman. Einstein was a good personal friend. Teller had also gone to the same high school. Okay, you know, he had real people he knew well to compare with. And he said, Johnny's not like them. Johnny's smart. <laughs> but there were people who interacted with von Neumann who developed the theory that von Neumann had figured out how to simulate being a normal human being when he needed to be. Because to figure, he, maybe he wasn't, but he's smart enough he could fake it. So, uh, and along these lines, for example, Teller mentioned an example where uh, von Neumann was talking to, uh, I think I think it was Teller's kid, a three-year-old, and he was talking to him very reasonably and kind of as an equal. You know, he was adjusting his uh, – and by the way, many people do this. We adjust our conversation 
to a small child in a way that doesn't, you know, we don't use the same vocabulary where we have a model of how the kid works and the model doesn't assume they're exactly like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Anyhow, so says von Neumann seemed very comfortable talking with this three-year-old as an equal. And then Teller said, is that what he's doing with me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, the point is, if you are smart, you ought to be able to, to some extent, adjust yourself. And I think people do. I mean, most people do. You know, they uh, they adjust to the sort of interest the other person has to some extent more if you want to, less if you don't care. Uh, you uh, you know, you adjust to the person you're talking to. You you don't if there's a certain subject, you may not want to talk wildly over their head, since what would be the point of referring to things you know they've not run into? Uh, so I'd say most people. Uh, by the way, not everybody, but most people are not terrible at this, at uh, talking to uh, other people in a way that adjusts to the other person's personality and capabilities. I did have that experience once at a conference. I, I talked a lot with somebody and, you know, I thought like, oh, gee, we're about at the same level equal. And it occurred to me that everything I said, he understood, but he would sometimes say things to me that I didn't quite get. I'm like, wait a minute. He's figured out my level. He's, you know, he's, he's way above me and I'm not able to figure that out. I wasn't able to figure that out initially. Well, I mean, there can also be misfires in this. There was a guy who's done some interesting work, which I think on the whole has not been terribly correct, but it was not unreasonable. Uh, he was looking for pathogens involved with schizophrenia, and mm-hmm. it's certainly possible, but it looks to me from what we know now as if it's largely genetic problems. But I was talking with him once, and it was kind of a cold call. I don't think he knew me. And after I was talking for a while, I had the strong impression he thought I was insane. <laughs> uh, and I don't think it was because I was saying anything terribly radical. It's just he probably gets a lot of calls from people. He is a psychiatrist. Oh. He, you know, For people interested in some of these questions, they're probably disproportionately people who are worried about their own problems, which is supposed to be a general trend in people you know, who end up becoming psychotherapists and stuff. And And I said, I wasn't really mad about it. It was sort of interesting because normally I don't actually have people assume that I'm insane while they're talking to me. Or but they it, just don't let on that they think that. I, they've I'm modeled not, you and they know you'd be upset. Yes, but. yeah, sure. They're not that good. I'm better. Uh, uh, right. but, <laughs> oh, but And he wasn't mean about it or anything. Uh, by the way, we later talked, and I think he now knew where I was coming from, and, and that flavor was gone. But it was sort of an amusing flavor in that first conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, e. Fuller Tory. Uh, but at uh, any rate, uh, okay. So emotional there, intelligence, I'm sure people vary in it, but I don't think that the people talking about it have contributed anything yet useful yet. Okay. So most of you know IQ is come out of psychology, and as I'm sure you know, there's an enormous replication crisis in psychology where a lot of the results are turning out to be fraud or bad statistics. Why should we trust IQ? Why shouldn't we just lump this in with how maybe it's right, but, you know, an unreliable profession has told us this stuff? Well, well it <laughs> it seems to be one of the few sectors of psychology where there is no replication crisis. Usually people, you know, it may be partly because uh, you know, uh, N is big. Uh, uh, there are several reasons, but that is probably one. People have often done... IQ tests and administer them to fairly large numbers of people. So that at least eliminates some of the problems from small sample size. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be partly because they're easier to administer than, you know, some of these other things that people are trying. 
uh, you know, but, you know, think of, you know, I gave this test to, you know, let's say, you know, many thousands of kids in some uh, large public or uh, some states uh, system versus I, uh, I picked, um, I talked, I did some experiments with 18 sophomores, mm -hmm. which is a more typical one. Uh, and actually, there's one other thing which has been probably positive uh, for IQ is that uh, um, it's sort of hard to come up. See, you know, that, that, that replication crisis, I think part of it was because there were certain things people wanted to hear. And, and between sloppiness and a little bit of self-deception and occasional outright uh, 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 fraud, uh, they always heard those things. But very few of the things that come out of even a sloppy use of IQ tests, very few of them are what people want to hear, and they also work. Uh, so, I mean, they work in very practical ways. I mean, the Army uses IQ tests. They use or other things which are IQ tests with a different label, like the ASVAB test or the AFQT test. Uh, they found that, you know, if we had people in the top quarter – of our scores, you know, when we were training them to be tank gunners, they would hit the target twice as often as people who were, say, in the uh, uh, the uh, third quarter down, you know, from 25 to 50 percent. Uh, and they care whether you hit the other tank. And in fact, if you're driving a tank, you care, too. Uh, so uh, uh, and there are other things like that that have, uh, you know, quick uh, payoffs they found it was easier to you know being a pilot is a moderate you know we're probably talking more about the past it's i'm sure it's gotten even worse but being a pilot is a fairly complex task yeah it's probably more complex than driving a jeep okay yes. yeah. um and they found that they you know they would have trouble with people washing out now there's you know failing uh, uh now in fact sometimes in world war ii where we push hard failing means you run your plane into a mountain mm -hmm. uh and they don't want to do that. They want. They were willing to take some losses because it was a war and they were in a hurry, but they wanted them to be as low as possible. So the people have found that uh, people who do better on these paper and pen, uh, uh, paper and pencil tests, are more likely to successfully complete uh, and to be better flyers. It's not the only part of the story. I mean, with flight, for example, you want to have somebody with 2015 vision as well good peripheral vision, things that are not tested. You know, in, in few of these things, is IQ the only thing to be considered? But it is useful. Mm -hmm. uh, now, with IQ, is there a threshold effect where we can't really say above a certain level it's all the same? Or where, or where, or, or where we, we, we can say that above a oh, certain yeah, we level? Can. Sorry, yeah. So is it with yeah. the pilot? Well, you know, once they reach 130, no. it doesn't really matter. No, but there are a lot of people in the lower reach with people of IQ of 120 who'd like to say that it is. Is this true? No. But uh, in practice, there there often is because, uh, like, like you, um, well, there's a couple of things going on. But, uh, like, one thing that certain bearded wonders have said recently is that uh, – And by uh, the way, check Greg's Twitter account if you want to know who he's referring to. But go on. <laughs> that, uh, like, IQ above – like I believe in the exam, it says it doesn't really tell you anything. If it's below 100, yeah, it maybe shows there's something wrong with you. I said, but if but they were saying at higher levels, like suppose you had 140 rather than 120, that doesn't predict anything. Well, that's false. It does. 
in fact, having 160 rather than 140, that predicts two. Uh, they have done long-running studies of exactly this thing, and all those claims about, well, you know, it's high enough. There are, I mean, it would, for many complex tasks, particularly, you know, really intellectually difficult tasks, like being a top-flight creative mathematician, it's better to have a higher score. It's, it's, you're more likely. Again, it doesn't guarantee you will be a top-flight mathematician, but someone with a high score in early in life is much more likely well, to be able to pull this why off. Isn't, why isn't every high-status profession dominated by high IQ people, by extremely high IQ people? Why don't people with IQ 160 run Wall Street, run the militaries? Well, one reason is there are two or three reasons, but the fundamental reason is there aren't very many of them. Ah. Uh, for example, I, I once said, how come we don't have – People who are a healthy, I mean, healthy means no pituitary problem, a healthy seven foot ten athletic guys dominate basketball. Well, there's a simple reason. There aren't any healthy seven foot ten non uh, pituitary giants. Nobody's that big. And even if there was, they're probably only the only guy I can think of who came close. He was seven, nine and a half. Uh, he was unusual. He's like been like one guy like that every 50 years in the world. Uh, so there aren't very many people like that. And there are other reasons, too. Again, it's only one factor. Like if you wanted somebody to be, uh, you know, to have a given job, said we'd like him to be really smart. I said, what else would you like? Well, we'd like it if he was interested in doing this stuff. I think there's actually a tendency for very smart people to find some everyday activities less interesting than something more intellectual. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they certainly so, have more activities they could potentially find interesting. They could, you know, like complex else, poetry much, or ancient Greek or something. There's a much larger number of different things they could pursue. So yeah. maybe they don't want to have the very best Starbucks in, in town, even though they might have a reasonable shot at doing so. But there are other things that matter. I mean, uh, you know, uh, luck matters. I mean, there are people who would do a good job of doing X, but some of the things that led to it involve luck, and they didn't have it. Mm -hmm. uh, things like general health matter. Things like, like you know, the degree to which you do find other people easy to understand. I don't think these tests of emotional intelligence are very good for it, but there are people, for example, who are like Dirac. You know, like Dirac was an excellent theoretical physicist, but there might have been jobs where a large part of the job involved you know, understanding that people are getting upset and finding, you know, fairly efficient ways of making them feel better. He might not have been very good. <laughs> yes, he would have been uh, a horrible Walmart manager. Uh, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Either that or he would have written a, an algorithm to do it for him or something. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I, I tend to think um, – and the other thing is people – the other thing is, well, wouldn't it be better to have him be? Because the typical Walmart, Walmart manager can't be uh, – an excellent theoretical physicist. So shouldn't we put this guy in the jobs where we get the greatest return, where mm -hmm. we do things that we need done that only these people can do? So, but uh, but the idea, but you know, the fundamental thing is that they uh, there aren't very many of them. Okay. Well but there are other factors as well. Okay. Now there's a stereotype of people who are exceptionally good at mathematical tasks are also socially awkward. So this is like, you know, the autistic uh, math or physics genius. Is there well, anything to that? Is it, is it just, we happen to notice people like that? I think, but I, I would not say I am statistically confident 
at this point. But if you're talking about the very tippy top mm-hmm. of you know the people who've done some of the biggest things and th- you know created new things and things like math, that you're seeing a higher fraction of people who have problems like that than in the general population, uh, and they are problems. I mean, you know, I you know some of the things the Dirac didn't understand made life harder for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, but there but even then we don't know which you know wh- which is causal. Like let's suppose you had guys who were very very smart uh, and had trouble understanding people. Mathematics might be a suitable home for them. It doesn't require the things they're not good at, and it re- highly rewards the things they are. So it or you could think of it as the guy who isn't you know somebody who's you know, who engages instantly and understands and empathizes with everybody around him. Uh, you know, if you don't do those things, you may have more time to work on things like math or, you know, abstract, non-personal relationship things. I mean, if um, if Newton had had a really complicated romantic life as opposed to zero romantic life, he, pro- he might have gotten less done. Yeah. Or he might have ended up being killed in a duel over a prostitute at age 19. That's Galois. I don't know if he was withdrawn, but he was at least mistaken. Uh, but if you look at the very highest level, yeah, these people don't – there's a higher fraction of people who are kind of odd. I've had people say, well, there are other people who are odd I, in other circles. I said, so there are. But since the person talking to me is a mathematician, they're supposed to be able to understand the idea of base rates. So – uh, was Isaac Newton an unusual personality as well as to being, you know, uh, you know, a great scientist? Yes, he was. Uh, what about von Neumann? He really wasn't. He was he was a more normal. You know, he could get along with people. Or at least Again, he could fake being normal. Yeah, maybe he's so far above us that he just is paying his left hand is doing this while he's thinking about something else. Yeah. Uh, but the simplest explanation is he really wasn't that strange. Uh, the. Uh, uh, Clerk Maxwell, I don't think he, you know, the guy who came up with the theory of electromagnetism, I don't think he was that strange. Uh, Goidel, who came up, proved that, you know, that there are things in mathematics that, you know, you can't prove or disprove uh, with, the, with given certain assumptions, uh, certain axioms. He was strange. Uh, he ended up eventually, uh, his wife was hospitalized when he was fairly old, and that meant there was no longer someone to taste his food. Uh, so he starved to death. Okay, <laughs> that's odd. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dirac was odd. Uh, I would say the fraction of uh, what there's a recent Fields medalist from South Africa, Richard Borchards, he's odd. Alan Turing, he was odd. And by the way, not just by being homosexual, he was odd for anybody. Okay, but uh, I think that it's probably true that at the very tippy top, you're seeing. But it's hard to say, is it that being odd makes it easier to have time to do math? Or is there is it the case where, you know, the human intelligence has been ramped up to a point where you're starting to see some side effects? I mean, for example, if I started to see people who are eight feet tall, mm-hmm. you could say in a sense humans aren't designed to be eight feet tall and you will have physical problems. You, I mean, there are a few people. Again, I think all of them are pituitary giants. But the simplest thing is, uh, you know, your knees are are not up to it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people's knees are kind of marginal anyhow. But you start being that big and weighing that much, you're going to have bad knees. 
uh, and other problems. Uh, I remember reading about one such guy. You know, he had apparently only the same number of pain nerve endings as other people, and they were spread out thin because he was so big. Mm-hmm. And there were places in his leg you could apparently stick a pin in, and he wouldn't notice it, <laughs> which shows what kind of friends he had. Uh, but uh, the point is, you know, there's some sort of architecture, and if you push anything far enough, you're going to get to the point where certain things may not be working absolutely smoothly. Uh, Although John von Neumann is evidence that we can produce well, you could, extreme geniuses uh, who are. But, but, it, it, but the others are, are suggesting that, uh, well, I, Borchers said, I visited many math departments and there was always at least one guy there who was stranger than me. <laughs> uh, and I, the article that was talking about this, they mentioned a guy, at such a guy, uh, his friends had invited, uh, his friends also, you know, the, a mathematical couple had invited him over for, for supper, and he was there, but he spent the whole evening crouched under the kitchen table reading something in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And they said, well, yeah, he does that. Well, not no. hurting anybody. No. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's let's turn to what in part makes this a controversial topic, and that's the role of genetics in intelligence. What, what does the research show? How important is genetics in intelligence to determine someone's intelligence? Um. Uh, very i mean there are it's uh the things there are other things people would like to determine them and as far as i can tell they probably don't have any role at all uh they it's like you know going to the right schools the right education the right social environment uh although you need a social environment i think if they if we raise you in a box with no human contact you won't learn language mm-hmm. but uh the things that people assume should matter apparently don't uh so genetics matters a lot. It doesn't explain everything, but the, but the uh, the part of it which is not genetics is in a sense uh, we know some things it's not. We know that uh, like we could say uh, identical twins are this similar. They're not perfectly similar, but they're quite similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, but one of the elements in that similarity is that you know the, an IQ test there's some variability as to the answer. If you gave if you could, as far as we know, if you gave the IQ test to the same person the next day, on average, the, well, the answer would vary some. It's, you know, he might, you might miss a different question or two. Right. You might, if we picked a different time of the day, you might be sleepier. You might be more or less alert. Uh, anyhow, uh, the difference between IQ, twin, identical twins taking the test is fairly similar to the same person taking it twice. Of course. You know, identical twins, they're often not raised apart. And no, the even... ones I'm thinking of are special cases where they were raised apart. Okay. Well, uh, even if they're raised apart, though, the fact that they look the same might mean other people are treating them similarly. People have actually looked for what they called, uh, uh, for people who look very similar but are unrelated, mm-hmm. you know, where you'd swear, uh, and they studied them, and there is no special similarity because of how they look. Although, I mean, it might be that they both look like a Hollywood actress that people will ask them out, but yeah. it doesn't seem to affect their test scores. Okay. Well, so people have looked at that exact thing. And Well, uh, well how, how, how much of the variation in human intelligence is estimated to be due to genetics? Probably at least half. Okay. Uh, and most of the rest is something is – you can say certain things that it's not, but you can't say much about what it is. You could say the non-genetic part does not look like it's influenced much 
by uh, things that are experienced by the whole family, which would be how big your house is, how many books in it, how much money you have, what neighborhood you live in. Uh, but it's so it's not what they called or not much of it is what they call shared environment. But that leaves it you not knowing exactly what it is. I mean, it is impossible that most of it is fundamentally random processes such that, you know, your development of your brain and so forth, although generally guided by your genes, there's a little bit of random stuff happening it's simply because, you know, because there's thermal processes involved or something uh, and that people don't come out exactly the same even when they are genetically the same. Now, you, you said the shared environment doesn't matter. Is that true for if you look at the IQs of children or is it just applied to adults? I think it applies more to adults. Uh, I think that's the case. Uh, and again, one of the things you always have to think about in all of this stuff is, look, we do not have – we have measures of intelligence. The measures are not perfect. Uh, for example, uh, I think there's a reasonable chance that uh, being – like if you're in a case where the IQ test is the first standardized test you've ever taken in your life, as opposed to somebody who's more familiar with standardized tests, that could, you know, some degree of familiarity may affect the score. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that, there aren't many people in this country who have never had any kind of standardized test, although I, my children went through periods like that because we homeschooled them for a while. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, my daughter, for example, had taken, I think, one test ever in her life because we didn't really do that when she and when but then she started a local high school and she took some test and she got a 12.8 on it and she was panicked because she thought it was on a scale of 100 mm -hmm. it was her grade level oh that's pretty good then. <laughs> yes she had actually gotten the maximum possible score but uh, for you know part of a day she was worried uh but you know she just by the way, that obviously didn't interfere with her taking the test, but uh, uh, I mean, how well she took it, but she she didn't she wasn't familiar with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but you it can interfere if you like if you've not mastered the uh, the art of truly erasing, uh, you know, the little filled in thing when you make a mistake. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, uh, yeah, most of these, you know, the IQ influence is funny because you know, the, the IQ of influence of genes on IQ, it increases with age, which is interesting. I think a lot of people would not have expected that, and I'm not sure I ever expected yeah, it. Yeah, because experiences differ as you get older, right? We all, yeah, but, if you're in middle class American, way, you have the same, you know, childhood. Think of it this way. Your gene, think of your genes as like they've established some sort of complex multidimensional landscape, and there are, you know, slopes. And you always want to slide down the slope anytime that something isn't actively pushing you up. You have tendencies, and the tendencies are there all the time. They never forget. They never quit. They're saying you don't uh, – they're saying you were taught that you don't like liquor, but you do like liquor. You do. And if you ever try it, you said you will like it uh, or vice versa. Uh, the, your point is the tendencies – at least that's one way of thinking of it. But it's an empirical fact that on something like IQ, the uh, uh, predictability from your parents' genes goes up as you get older. Uh, that may also be that you know maybe the measurement's getting better. Mm. Uh, you know maybe there are things that affect IQ up and down more. I mean, like at some limit, I've heard people who tried to talk about IQs for three-year-olds or one-year-olds, and we're one-year-olds. Nobody knows how to do it. For three-year-olds, 
I mean, the, the three-year-old result, they were measuring the size of the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. But that was all they could get. I mean, they could get the kids to fill out, you know, word problems yeah. and stuff. They couldn't read. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, I've heard people uh, were trying to talk about when you uh, uh, when you start walking, for example. I said, well, that varies, uh, but probably not in a way that has anything to do with IQ, uh, or not much, anyhow. Uh, I mean, well, one way of thinking of it is, you know, how long does it take? Uh, quail to start running after they're hatched i said i don't know an hour uh that doesn't mean they're smarter than us i mean the 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 degree of precocity the degree to which you know you do something very early uh humans are actually kind of slow on that uh Mm -hmm. and uh uh yeah we it's not tightly tied to how you do later so you said you know at least 50 percent, but what what do you think it might go up to what is like the highest reasonable range once we learn everything about genetics and intelligence that well, there are two things involved. See, when people talk about heritability, there's actually what they call broad sense heritability and there's narrow sense heritability. Broad sense is the total effect of all genes, and that's what you see when you compare uh, twins, mm-hmm. uh, identical twins. Uh, uh, but you see, in those cases, like suppose there was something that you had a, a certain three gene variants and some of they interacted in a special way, they had a special result you would see that same special result in your twin because they've got the same three genes. That mm-hmm. tends not to happen. You know, even, uh, an ordinary sibling is related to you, but they're but not so much that they have all the same patterns, you know, uh, associations of genes. They have many of the same genes, but they don't typically have all. You know, they don't mm-hmm. have the the you know the the patterns as well. The uh, the nonlinear interactions. Uh, so uh, the uh, f- uh, broad sense heritability counts everything. So this fact, is sort of sorry if there's if there's a gene variant and if you have it you get a little bit of IQ, then that's if, a linear that effect, effect. But yeah, if there's if it's if, an additive or linear effect, right. then uh, no, the, the, that's what we call narrow sense yes. heritability. And narrow sense heritability that's probably around 0.5. Probably full broad sense heritability might be points. It's at least some bigger. I don't know 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6, something. So broad uh, sense would be if a variant, it helps me if I have another gene, it hurts me if I don't have that other some gene. Some sort of nonlinear effect. Yeah. The, the simplest example, I don't think these examples are super important, but at least we understand them. Like let's suppose you were a twin and you had two copies of sickle cell. Mm-hmm. You will have the sickle cell illness, and so will your identical twin. Now, your brother is more likely to have just one copy, and therefore he's more similar than average, but he doesn't have sickle cell, which is actually – because that's a very nonlinear effect. You, mm-hmm. The effect is very different when you have two genes – of two copies of that genes than one. And now, not too many things are like this, but at least some are, and the identical twins will share all of those as well as the more normal – like if you said we have a lot of genes that make you a little taller, a little shorter, combinations of them don't do much other than add – Mm-hmm. Okay, and and that that's what you can use to predict how tall your seat. So you use narrow sense heritability to do prediction. That is for anybody other than your clone. If we're making a clone, we'd use full sense heritability because. And by the way, even that does not quite mention all the genetic effects. Oh, why you see, not? because because um, after conception, there are mu- mutations occasionally happen, uh, and uh, somatic mutations. They apply. To some of you, the cells in your body, they weren't there originally. So you could have uh, 
a few cells in your body that have had a, you know, one, a, a gene change, and you might have a whole clump of them that look like that. Uh, uh, and, uh, and that happens. I mean, for example, there is a, um, there is a disease called neurofibromatosis. And in that case, uh, there is a, a gene which normally you have two working copy of people with this disease only have one working copy. But now and then, there'll be a few cells in their uh, skin or something, for example, will lose the second copy, and then you'll have an odd-looking piece of skin that sometimes turns into a low-grade tumor. Mm -hmm. The point is, and you, you look patchy, because in this case, also because this gene has a high mutation rate, because it's very long, there's more to go wrong, uh, the, the people's skin looks patchy. Each patch is a little area where you know, you have is genetically different from the rest of the body. Everybody has some of this. Most of it doesn't matter very much. But the point is, between two identical twins, they will not have the same somatic mutations. They will have different ones. And to the extent that they do anything, th that, that means even identical twins aren't 100.00% identical genetically. They can have differences. Uh, and to the extent that those are... No, but if we knew... Like, what if instead, what if we could prevent this? What if we could make a perfect clone of you? It had everything the same. Mm -hmm. Then, presumably, all these similarity numbers would be even more similar. But so one of the things that can make even identical twins uh, slightly dissimilar is if they have different mutations after birth. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the probably the most dramatic example would be like sometimes a mutation will make a cell turn cancerous. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well. Just because you have it doesn't mean your identical twin will, and that can end up drastically affecting your IQ, like because you're dead, yeah. uh, which yeah, is certainly. one of the main things that drops IQ. So, the, so the the fact that most of our the genetic component of intelligence comes from genes that have a linear effect, this is really a big deal in using genetics to predict someone's intelligence, right? This gives us yeah, hope or fear that we might be able to do it. That means you can do prediction without having to know everything in the universe. If we knew everything in the universe say, about how genes interact, then we could get even better predictions. But that's hard. So, we yeah, some, some people are claiming, you know, intelligence is a complex thing. We can't, we don't know enough about genetics. So all this stuff about genetics and intelligence well, is just crap they are, right now. They are part right. They don't know enough about genetics. <laughs> uh, for example, there was a book that made this claim that there are these very strong interaction effects. And that's why you can't predict very well from the parents mm -hmm. uh, by a guy who was called, uh, what, the gene, Mukherjee? Okay. Yeah, but it's false, and you could have found out it was false in an hour. But it's, it's true somewhat. It's just it's not. There's enough of the genetic component of intelligence. It's linear the majority that we can. The majority okay. appears to be fairly additive. So when he said it's mostly not additive, he's wrong because it mostly is additive. And and when people say you can't predict things because of the parents, because of the answer is well, they're, they're linear enough. You actually can. And I know this is going to seem strange, but when you see. And height is like that, too. When you see people who have, you know, parents are tall, on average, the kids are taller than average. It really works. Uh, um, I mean, you can have all course, you, you could claim that's due to environment. I mean, I know you could look at adoption studies, but. And they have, and it isn't. So that's the end of it. I mean, mm -hmm. people can claim anything, and they want to claim certain things, because there's a lot about the idea that, uh, you know, like who you are, how you think, the sort of person you are, that a lot of that is wired in. By the way, that isn't saying that, you know, talking about heredity is is, uh, is wired in because, you know, 200 years ago, nobody knew anything at all, or rather, 
they only knew sort of limited stock breeding type information about, in other words, more than a typical Harvard graduate today. But, uh, uh, you know, we have new ideas in our heads. New, we can know new facts. We can learn new skills. But our personalities and the things that appeal to us and how good we are at things is to a pretty large extent, uh, you know, what the genetics makes it be. Uh, uh, you, you know, um, and this disturbs a lot of people, but, but you know, they can't help be disturbed. Their genes make them disturbed. <sighs> so we've, our species has been doing animal breeding for a huge amount of time. Is that animal breeding, we're only able to do that because so many effects are linear that we can take two animals and say, hey, I bet if they had a kid that we would have traits we really like. Oh, uh, well, kind of. Uh, uh, you know, and we haven't been doing it for a really long time, not compared to the length of the species. We've been doing it for a few thousand years. Probably the oldest one of any is the dog, and that might be somewhat older. That might be twenty or 30,000 years. But uh, it is true that people have deliberately selected for certain things, and then they got them. So, and some of this goes back a long time. So people said, I want horses that are bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I want to be able to carry somebody wearing armor. Maybe even the horse is wearing armor. So people selected, and what they did was they picked for the ancestors of the next, you know, they would pick certain horses to be the the ones that would breed. They were the ones who would have the descendants in this herd we're working on. And we will pick, say, the biggest ones. And by the way, they're looking at other factors, too. I mean, they would like it to be big, but it should be healthy. It should be not try to bite you all the time. You know, you're obviously you're optimizing on several characteristics at once. But let's say you wanted to make a bigger horse. And you needed this, for example, in the Middle Ages to make, uh, again, to, to carry knights and to carry armor. Uh, you, know, the, you know, the guy ends up weighing, you know, 250 pounds uh, or, you know, or more with, with the horse armor. And, uh, and they did so, and it worked. And it worked over just a few, few hundred years. They ended up with bigger – there are some descendants of those horses – uh, are probably around, but they've been reused for other things, for certain kinds of farm work where very large horses could be useful. But you think of Percherons, you know, certain breeds of horses are very big. I think they're descended from some of the large horse, the large war horses in the Middle Ages. People also bred other kinds of horses, horses that were supposed to be fast. <coughs> there were horses that were supposed to be, you know, do reliable pulling the plow. And uh, to varying extent, I mean, extent some existing breeds or go back to that although we've done other things too since and you can do you can make those changes uh, yes things have to be fairly additive for um you know for this obvious kind of efforts to work but they do work and they so, work in plants mm -hmm. and uh, uh and when people said these things are so hopelessly complicated we can never get anything to work i said people were making it work thousands of years ago yeah uh, uh so, yeah, the existence of like thoroughbred horses and wheat is evidence that intelligence is not so complex that we can't get the genetics of it or get well, the genetics of a lot of it. Well, a simpler example is there are dogs that are – some breeds are smarter than others. It isn't just by analogy that intelligence could be selected for. We know it has in do different dog breeds. I mean, Border Collies, by every measure you can do, are smarter than, let's say, Basset Hounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and people said, well, they're just, you know, the other dogs are smart, but they just don't care to do it. I said, well, I guess they don't like treats either. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, tasks of different complexity are trying to teach them something. There's things you can teach 
to a border collie with like three repetitions and you might be able to teach it to a basset hound but it might take a hundred mm -hmm. uh so yeah they learn faster okay. uh they also uh and when people say well that isn't really true i said well i guess go argue with all the dogs in the universe uh uh it is true uh so uh or for example some of this is done recently people wanted uh you know there were certain kinds of shepherd dogs you know some of these things evolve naturally some of them were not even choosing things like some of the things that the ways dogs change from wolves are just ones that let them tolerate us more mm -hmm. uh other things are things we sort of insisted on like like the first thing you know like it is thought that perhaps originally dogs were just sort of hanging around scavenging human camps but the first thing you have to do is not be so afraid of humans mm -hmm. so that's a change but later, for example, suppose we have dogs close to us. We're using them. They're work dogs, and they may you know, be part of the family too and so forth. One rule is the dog should not eat your children. Yeah. And dogs are very good about that. <laughs> Wolves would not be very good about that. Uh, uh, I mean, they've changed, and that, that's an important respect. And I think that one was us saying, every dog that does that, that's the end of him. Yeah. So uh, so it's it's conscious human choice. But in some cases as well. But in like recent things, many popular breeds today were artificially created in the 19th century. You know, they used existing breeds, they mixed them, they selected for certain things, and they finally ended up with a type that people like. Uh, like the German Shepherd is not that old. Mm -hmm. The German Shepherd was kind of invented in the 1890s. Uh, and they bred several different dogs, you know, from different breeds. They even included a wolf or two. They put and, um, and you end up with German Shepherds. And German Shepherds, uh, they're pretty smart dogs, but they were also bred for certain personalities, and you can do that too. Uh, uh, I mean, they were protective of their owners. Uh, they seemed to want to be working at something. Mm -hmm. <coughs> uh, so uh, <coughs> uh, it's possible to breed for personality, for intelligence, and people have done it in many uh, you know, in different species. Now, sometimes that's not what you wanted. Or sometimes, you know, uh, like with thoroughbreds, like you would probably like a thoroughbred that had an easygoing personality, but you want even more, one that wins. Mm -hmm. And you ended up with thoroughbreds that very often don't have easygoing personalities because, you know, thoroughbreds, they're supposed to win, and that's it. And they've been pushed very far in that direction. They're different from other horses they're like 45 percent muscle whereas a, a more standard horse would be 30 mm -hmm. and they're pushed so hard that they have some health problems that are probably side effects of what are breeding them for this they tend to bleed in the lungs they you know they have various funny problems uh you know that that particularly happens when you try to get some you know, rebreeding for something you push very hard you select very strongly you do it with a small population and you do it rapidly uh, you don't end up – you end up with kind of problems with rough – you know, solutions with rough edges. So if we did that to a, for a human population for some reason, we, we decided to breed for super intelligence, we would likely get other problems. If we pushed as hard as we did with thoroughbreds mm -hmm. in a shorter time, probably yes. I'm not mm -hmm. sure I know what they would be. Judging from looking at uh, people, you know, among the very smartest people and the, the – odd personality types that I think are overrepresented in these groups. You might see more people with vaguely autistic like uh, things. I'll begin. It wouldn't necessarily be all of them. And if you understood, I, you know, I was 
dissing understanding because, you know, selective breeding has never needed it. Mm. But I'll tell you, it wouldn't hurt if we did. I mean, mm. the fact you can do things without a deep understanding doesn't say that a deep understanding wouldn't be nice. Mm. <laughs> I mean, so if I understood how these side effects happen, perhaps I could steer around them. That makes sense. So let, let's close you. You recently went to a, a conference on IQ and I didn't go, but you were you were telling me things about the atmosphere of this conference that, that basically that people who study IQ are. Well, why don't you describe it? Like they're, they're I think worried. it's fair to say they think the world's out to get them. Yeah, well, so, for some of them, that's certainly true. Certainly parts of the world. Uh, they think that. uh, uh that all, as the as the facts they're working on have become more strongly established at the same time, particularly in the past eight or ten years, and many circles uh, have become more and more inclined to violently reject those facts. And are, are they – do they respond by being strictly honest and becoming martyrs or – well, I didn't see any martyrs, but then I wouldn't have, right? Because you know, yeah. they'd, be buried, they'd be buried somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I think they tried to be honest, and I think they largely were before. I think they try to be, perhaps even if when possible, extra careful. Uh, I think there are times in which they don't necessarily phrase something in as clear and obnoxious a way as you as you could. That's that's my job. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, but they worry. Uh, they worry that. Uh, uh, that there are people who would like to see them all, you know, eating out of garbage cans. Uh, and I think it's kind of funny because it's, you know, I don't think there are many people who who both understand this subject, who also honestly think they're wrong. I think many of them think there are certain facts that should not be generally known. Of course, I think I agree with that a little, at least a little bit, but yeah. not to the extent they do. For example, if there was a simple way to destroy the world, uh, that could be made out of old beer cans. And st I would not want to tell everybody how to do it. Uh, uh, I mean, especially mm -hmm. if it only took 10 minutes while you're drunk. Uh, yeah. But uh, I don't really see that. In fact, I see in general, at, you know, dealing with people, dealing with social problems, if you understand them better, I think on the whole, you can probably do a better job of dealing with people and human problems if you have the facts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's a good way to end, I think. Uh, thank you very much. Perhaps in a future uh, discussion, we can talk about uh, ways of increasing human IQ through means of genetics or just you know normal supplements or education or something like that. But uh, anyways, uh, thank you very much, Greg. I appreciate okay. you being on. Okay.